Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Garrett, Ben, Jerry, Janet, and John, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, and stickers on our Teespring store if you feel inclined. Our guest today is Julie Vecchio. Julie has worked in fisheries research in the southeastern United States since 2003. She has a master's degree in marine biology from the College of Charleston and a PhD in marine science with an emphasis on marine resource management from the University of South Florida. As a former guest and host of the show, she has talked some about her background. However, she has recently moved states and started a new job with the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, working as one of the leads in the Coastal Resources section. This new position and agency allows her to have fun with lots of new projects, which I'm sure she'll tell us about today. Welcome back to the podcast, Julie. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate it. I am excited to be back. I definitely miss the fisheries podcast community. Yeah, every once in a while I have a I experience a moment that makes me realize that time is is really flying by. And I guess can you believe that it's been almost four years since you were originally interviewed on the fisheries podcast? No. Oh my god, four years? That is yeah, that's that's wild. And a lot has happened in that time for everybody. A short time after being a guest on the show, you you also agreed to help host the show, which we alluded to in the bio, but uh, that's also been almost two years since your last episode. Uh, what was your favorite part of hosting the podcast? Oh, man. I really actually loved hosting the podcast in part because I had an excuse to talk to some really, really amazing fisheries biologists and just really highlight some of the cool work that's going on that other people might not have heard about. When I originally interviewed you 170 episodes ago or four years, one of the things you said you enjoy most is being out on a ship, preferably sailing. And we mentioned you started a new job with South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Does this new position allow you to go out to sea sailing or otherwise? It does. Um, I get to be on the water so much more than I had over the past several years. Uh, This new position at the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources includes uh, significant amounts of sea time. One of our major surveys is um, trapping for uh, snappers and groupers in the southeastern at uh, South uh, (laughs) off the southeastern United States. It's a very difficult way to to. to describe this area. It's part of the North Atlantic, but it's in the southeast of the U.S. Anyway, uh, from North Carolina to Florida and anywhere, uh, I'll be spending anywhere between 40 and 50 days on a research vessel uh, coming up here starting probably around May 1st. So I'm really excited about that part of the job coming up that I'm going to get to, you know, incorporate back in going out to sea and getting to put my hands on lots of fish and get stinky and be offshore um, on on a, a relatively large research vessel. So I'm really excited about that part. Myself, having worked almost, ex- I guess, exclusively in the Midwest, uh, I am clueless about how exactly marine fisheries management works. Uh, we, You work for the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Does, does your work area basically extend straight out from the South Carolina border or you've kind of 
hinted in your answers that you kind of cover a, a work in the ocean outside of the borders of South Carolina. How does marine fisheries management areas work? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, it It's actually a little bit tricky because states will manage their marine fisheries out to generally about three miles. There are a couple of exceptions, but beyond three miles, these are managed by the federal government and under a law that's called the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Management Act. Um, Anyway, Magnuson-Stevens, and that's a federal law that requires that all uh, fisheries in federal waters are managed sustainably. Um, And so what that includes is... um, stock assessment at a larger than state scale. Um, So generally, these areas are divided up into relatively large regions of ocean. So our survey is a fishery independent survey. So counting the total numbers of fish, hopefully, or an index of the total numbers of fish everywhere from North Carolina to Florida in federal waters. And then those are fed into a federal stock assessment process that includes all of the landings, everything that recreational and commercial fishers have caught in those waters um, to get an estimate of sort of how many they are, how many are being caught, and how many we think can be caught sustainably in the future. So how is the area that you sample determined? Is it just kind of, do you go one state to the north and uh, one state to the south? These areas are divided up essentially by the federal government. So the South Atlantic Fishery Management Council is responsible for from North Carolina to essentially the Tortugas in the Florida Keys. And so all of that area um, is considered together. It just happens that the one of the main fishery independent surveys is housed here in South Carolina. We actually have a federal partner, a NOAA partner, who participates in the same survey, and they are based out of North Carolina. When you're going out and doing these surveys, you kind of sent some some information about the the surveys, and they have two different acronyms, CMAP and SURFS, and I'm sure they, they stand for something. Would you mind uh, elaborating a little bit of, of of these two main survey methods that you use? Yeah, so CMAP is a Southeast Area Manage... I always mess that one up. Um, <laughs> so this one is actually... The the CMAP survey is actually in sort of the nearshore and state waters. Um, it is a partnership between the states. And, the, and this survey is focusing on smaller fish that are closer to shore, essentially in state waters, um, and often... The numbers coming out of those are going to be applied to either sort of state level management or uh, management from a body that's a collective of states instead of officially sort of federal management. It's a it's a very fine distinction there. The other surveys, uh, SURFs, uh, Southeast Reef Fish Survey, is working exclusively or almost exclusively in federal waters, looking at reef fish or fish that are generally larger and associated with sort of hard bottom. Now, of course, in most of this region, we don't have you know, traditional coral reefs, but we have large areas of exposed rock with lots of stuff growing on them. And we consider that to be a reef as well. And so for that 
uh, for that survey, we are using a very large trap. Um, we call it a chevron trap. It's kind of an A shape, and it's like six feet tall, maybe four to five feet wide. We're attaching cameras to it as well. So not only are we getting the biological information about those fish that are um, some of the fish that are in the area that want to go into a trap and eat the bait, but also we're watching those videos to see who else is around, how many more fish there are. Um, and even using some stereo video technology to be able to measure some of those fish. And we'll get back to the camera thing because it sounds really interesting. But I guess uh, another um, naive Midwesterner comment or question. Um, when I think when I think most people when they think of the oceans that don't work in the oceans, they they think of uh, the big marlin and sharks and those big charismatic fish. And I. I I didn't hear you mention any of those in any of your your survey answers. Do you um, do you mess with those fishes much, or is it just kind of a whatever comes into our traps and trawls? Uh, we don't generally deal too much with some of the the large pelagics like you're mentioning. So those do actually get assessed on a federal and international level at at some rate, but you can imagine that they would be very, very, very difficult to, to quantify to figure out how many there are and even where they are. Um, so that's still a pretty open question. We are dealing much more frequently with fish that I'd say are, are significantly more homebodies. They have an area that they like to stay. Some of them will move around in order to spawn or some other, you know, reason why they might move a few hundred miles, but they're not moving the, the thousands and thousands of miles that those billfish or tuna are going to move. So when dealing with these homebodies, you mentioned in the, in the reef fish survey that you use these chevron traps that I imagine, uh, are designed to have the fish swim into them and not be able to swim back out. But then you also mentioned you have cameras mounted on the tops of these traps to gather more information, I guess. Um, do you have that many fish that uh, elude the, the traps that you would need to have the cameras on there? Or is it just collecting kind of additional information of, of what's out there and cruising around? There's a few different reasons to add the cameras to the trap. First, uh, the first reason that they were added way back, um, probably over 10 years ago was just to make sure that we are hitting the areas we thought we were hitting, the areas where we know that fish like to hang out. Um, so you can imagine that a trap landing in a completely sandy area with not much structure around, even in a lake, is probably not going to have as many fish as an area that has lots of big rocks and stuff that's attached to it and all that kind of jazz. So one of the first things that we used cameras for was just to make sure that those traps were going where we thought they were going and they were going where fish might want to hang out. Um, the other reason, surprisingly, is that there are a lot of species out there and ones that we care about that don't necessarily like to go into traps very much. Um, either they're not attracted to the bait that we're using, they are kind of more of a wary species, they're going to uh, they're not super aggressive. They're going to maybe shy away from that big thing that just landed into their habitat. Um, and so adding these cameras, we can um, we do actually count a lot more species than what ends up in the trap. Um, and again, once we were able to add this uh, stereo technology, we can even get an estimate of the sizes of some of these fish. So there are a few highly 
sought after species such as um, gag grouper that are moderately plentiful on the reefs. I mean, a little bit, um, but very rarely go inside the traps. Now, I guess while you were given the answer, I, I thought of a, an interesting hypothetical or future world where uh, I guess I'd imagine these traps are set out because that's the way the sampling has been done historically. And then the, the cameras were added. Um, would there ever be a day where you would just basically send a pole down with a camera on it with a bait bag and kind of see what swims up to it with the camera without using the trap? So that's a really good question. And there are some surveys that are trying that. But one of the other things that we do get out of actually trapping the fish and bringing them back are the um, the biological information. So it's pretty tough. You can get a, a moderately good estimate of the size of your fish just by using a stereo camera, but you're not going to get any information about the actual age. You're not going to get any information about the actual age of the fish or the reproductive potential of, of the fish, which are all still going into our single species stock assessments. We need all of that information in order to make the most informed decisions about what to do in the future. And I'd imagine there's uh, quite a bit of uh, analysis that goes along with the computer time. Are, are you able to utilize any sort of software that to aid in, in viewing all that footage, or do you just have to sit down and uh, eat some popcorn and watch some fish swimming by? Yeah, unfortunately, um, I actually started doing video type work in around 2003. Four, and I did it for a few years while I was in Florida. Um, and I used to lovingly refer to it as watching fish on TV. Um, and to this day, we still do not have effective AI that is able to tell us even sort of when a fish swims into the screen, let alone what that fish happens to be. I think you know, obviously those technologies exist in other realms. And I think as the price of them comes down, we're going to be able to access those, but it mostly has been an economy of scale and, um, you know, an issue of, of funding in order to get some sort of computer program that can tell you, hey, look at this time and tell me what it is. And it sounds like you've been uh, doing some of this computer work for, or camera work for a few years, not just in South Carolina, but you mentioned Florida. I guess what's, is there uh What's the most interesting thing you've ever seen swim across these cameras, uh, I guess, fish or otherwise? Oh, man, there's all kinds of stuff that you can see. Um, you know, in the eastern Gulf of Mexico, we didn't see a ton of large critters. We would see turtles every now and then. Um, but here in South Carolina, I've actually seen several different species of sharks, including um, tiger sharks and even great whites. So that's pretty fun. That's a, that's a pretty exciting find when you see that. Seem to remember from our previous interviews and conversations, uh, you, you also used to do some diving. Do you still get to do some diving as part of your job in South Carolina? I'm, I'm working on becoming a part of the dive team here in South Carolina. Um, I'm hoping that I can do that as part of my job. There is a small team of divers, um, mostly focused on sort of um, uh, maintenance for acoustic receiver arrays. Um, so there is some work using acoustic tags and the receivers that are sitting out there in the ocean need to be sort of changed out every once in a while. And so the dive team primarily does that, but you know what, it's going underwater. And so I'm excited about getting involved in that soon. 
along the same lines of, of work they used to do with we originally interviewed you about um, some of your work with stable isotopes and the fish islands as a fish. Are you are you able to continue some of that work uh, up in South Carolina with some of the fish you collect in the CMAP and surf surveys? Yeah, so I'm definitely hoping to continue the islands, uh, down the island stable isotope path. One of the things that we need in order to start that work is actually an isotope map, or we call it an isoscape. So it's the background isotope values for the region. And that was something that another student in my lab at USF had already done. And so I was able to sort of piggyback off of that work. So here in the, in the South Atlantic region, we don't have something like that. Um, but right now I am funded on a project that is creating that map. So I actually have a master's student who's working with me. Um, he is a a master's student at the College of Charleston in the marine biology program that I graduated from several years ago. Um, and that will be his project is actually creating this background map for this region of isotopes um, to see what the expected values might be in different uh, parts of this region. I'm slightly familiar with these types of maps from uh, sitting in on microchemistry presentations and stuff in, in the interior United States where they basically collect water samples every once in a while through tributaries. Uh, but to be a little different in the ocean, dude, basically just kind of go out and collect random samples across grids in the ocean. Or I guess how large of an area do you need to collect samples from to get a good isoscape? So we're actually using fish muscle. Um, so that's one of the advantages of working in a program that collects a lot of fish is that we can pick a couple of species that that we know occur throughout the region, um, and we can analyze their muscle for their isotope patterns um, and get an idea of what the trends are within those muscles. So we're focusing on two different species in the region, and we're hoping to collect those species from basically our entire sampling universe from the from North Carolina to Florida, and as wide of an area as we can get is going to you know, make it as, as good as we can make it. And you mentioned that, uh, this is being done by a, a master's student at the college of Charleston, where, where you also earned your master's degree. And now you have the opportunity to mentor, uh, the next wave of students through there. Um, it sounds like you have, have one student so far. Um, are you able to be their kind of lead advisor or are you kind of just, a uh, an, uh, extra person on their committee or how does your role there at the College of Charleston work? Yeah, one of the things that I really, really love about the marine biology program at the College of Charleston and I um, have valued since my time there is that it is heavily integrated into the research community here in Charleston. Um, and so there are actually five different partner agencies between the college and um, the Medical University of South Carolina, NOAA, um, NIST, which is the National Institutes of Standards and Technologies, and the South Carolina DNR, all of whom um, work very, very closely together. And PhD researchers at any of those institutions can actually be major advisors for the students in the marine biology program. Um, and so I am actually a major advisor for the student in, in the marine biology program. One of the other things that I really, really love about this program 
is that students do not have to pick an advisor when they arrive on campus or when they apply to the program. They are ad, um, admitted on academic merit, and then they have basically the first year to figure out what their specific interest is and what sort of project they want to do within the field of marine biology. And actually, to be totally honest, um, I never would have ended up in fisheries if I had not had that opportunity. I had no idea when I started my master's degree what fisheries science was. I had no idea that it could be valuable. I had no idea that it could be really, really exciting. Um, and I wouldn't have ended up where I am today if I hadn't had that opportunity. So I really, really value that as a very cool experience that students can have and really understand the breadth of um, options that are out there within the field. I guess that sounds like a, a really good pitch to any prospective students that uh, want to do a master's but aren't quite sold on, on which field exactly to, to go for. Um, do you have any future opportunities for students in the works or anything down the pipe? Um, we currently, so our program currently has three federal grant proposals in. We're still waiting to hear about whether we've actually gotten those grants. However, students, and while students don't have to know who they're going to work for, they can uh, contact prospective advisors, people ahead of time that they think might be interesting. Um, and generally, if you're interested in doing the type of work that we do or something within our work, um, we can find a place for you, actually. While preparing to do the interview, I'd, uh, I was doing a little homework on you, and I guess just Googling your name with fish following it and um, found some of your your College of Charleston and South Carolina profile pages and saw that you're doing um, using some near infrared spectroscopy to age fish and study environmental history. I guess how does this near IR spectroscopy work? So I'll be totally honest. Um, I am relatively new to this field, but this is something that uh, Noah is sort of investigating pretty heavily as a potential way of um, aging fish much more quickly. So the traditional way that we age many of our species here, um, of course, is to take that otolith, embed it in some two-part epoxy, and then section it very, very thinly on a low-speed saw, um, and then count those rings. And all of that is relatively labor-intensive and, and kind of difficult, honestly, to get to a good age estimate for the thousands and thousands of individuals that you need. Um, and so using these near infrared lasers, they are able to, um, to create these age profiles for a fish within seconds. So you can take a whole otolith, put it onto um, this, the laser machine, essentially, and it will give you its estimate of how old that, that fish might have been. Um, it's still a relatively new technology, and it's still something that needs to be trained with otoliths that are um, aged in a traditional manner. But it does have the potential to really increase the speed of of aging. Just judging by the name of it, it sounds like a, a big, expensive machine. Um, I guess, is this something that you... Uh, or the South Carolina has at an office, or do you have to go to a university lab somewhere and, and run samples? Uh, we do actually have one. It's, it's not, it's not like a, a full room size machine. It's sort of a desktop kind of size machine. So we do have one. We've had a student do a research project using it. Um, we expect to use it 
more kind of investigating the possibilities for using this technology. And I guess while using it, how often do you uh, quote Dr. Evil and just say lasers? <laughs> 15 times a day. While I was digging through and, and finding your, your profiles on College of Charleston and South Carolina's websites, it, um, there was a picture they used, a recurring picture that uh, has you, it looks like you're either kissing or taking a bite out of some sort of globular fish i guess would you mind describing what's going on in that picture i was kissing an octopus um that was a long time ago i don't exactly remember the context but we were at sea and um you know sometimes you got to make your own fun when you're on a boat and kissing an octopus could always do that it certainly sounds like you're having fun in your new position uh but what are you doing for fun once you clock out at the end of the day how I remember you enjoying paddleboarding around your old home area on the Florida Gulf Coast. Has that hobby followed you north or have you picked up any new ones? Yeah, it definitely has. Um, the scenery is a little bit different. Paddling here in the um, in the Charleston Harbor area, we have a lot more marsh and a lot less um, mangroves. We have a little bit bigger tides, so that's always a little bit of a consideration. But I do love going back into the creeks um, and just checking out those marshes on my paddleboard. Um, I also now my child is six. So we do a lot of, you know, sort of outdoor things with him. We live around the, the corner from a state park and go and check that out on a regular basis. Um, go to the aquarium, you know, the kid stuff. Well, Julie, it's, it's certainly great catching up with you and, and hearing about all the stuff you're doing in South Carolina. But I think you know what comes next in the episode, the, the final five questions. This is a group of five questions that we ask each of the guests to come on the show. And we, we start real simple with what is your favorite fish? Yeah, so I've definitely answered these questions before, but I have no memory of what those answers were. So we'll have to find out how they compare. Um, I am going to go today with the red grouper. That was a fish that got me into um, thinking about doing a PhD that was a major part of my PhD um, and is a major fish and fishery in the eastern Gulf of Mexico. We see them very, very rarely around here, but I'm hoping to see one in our videos from, south, from uh, the South Atlantic. And a bonus question. Do you have any fish tattoos? I do. I do. It's a leafy sea dragon. And I've thought about more for many years and just haven't gotten any. I was, uh, I was watching a YouTube video the other day and the, the person was talking about their tattoos that they had. It was kind of a Q&A video. And uh, they said that they, they wished more, but at, at this age, you kind of have to weigh paying the bills with getting more tattoos and uh, I can definitely relate to that. That is absolutely true. Yes. So we, we mentioned uh, numerous times that it sounds like you're having fun, but what is your favorite memory from your career so far? It's so hard just to, to pick just one. Um, I, you know, sunset on a boat um, is always just going to be my favorite, most magical moment. And a, kind of a similar question. What is your dream job or dream location to work in? You know what? Honestly, this was one of my dream jobs. It is one of my dream jobs. I love the um, 
I love this program. I love the the variety of different types of work that I get to do every day um, from collecting data to mentoring students to analyzing data and presenting it. Um, this is really one of my dreams. And it sounds like you have uh, a handful of projects going on there already and, and a few more uh, in the works. But if money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? Yeah, one of the things that I am actually sort of trying to engage some of my uh, DNR uh, colleagues in is using those stabilized hopes in some of the more, as you put it, charismatic uh, fish and, you know, large pelagics, ones that are moving around. There are a few people here that are interacting with those through tournaments and things. And I would love to get my hands on some of those eyes and be able to see if we can track where they're going using that technology. And finally, if there is one point or one principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I'm going to go with my old standby. Everything touches the ocean. Well, Julie, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure catching up with you and hearing about your, your new adventures in South Carolina. If, if people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do that? I think the best way actually right now is just old-fashioned email. Um, it is J at dnr.sc.gov. And if you would like to get a hold of me, you can find me or the rest of the Fisheries Podcast hosts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Pod logo, shirts, hoodies, or stickers available on Teespring. I am Nick Kramer, and thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, everything touches the ocean. Mm-hmm.